Wired into technology transformation, this is the Digital Bulletin Podcast. Hello, listener. Thank you for tuning in. This is episode 15 of the Digital Bulletin Podcast, the final episode of 2020. And it wouldn't feel right if we closed off this year with anyone other than your two regular panellists, the fan favourites, Digital Bulletin CEO, Romilly Broad. Uh, I'm a fan favourite. That's good. I've achieved something this year. You're the favourite of a a single fan, I reckon. Uh, And content director, James Henderson. Good morning. (laughs) So much energy. (laughs) I'm not sure how to deal with that. Rob, it's, it's nearly over. 2020. Nearly over. It's I wish I wish the world actually operated um according to our calendar. <laughs> and then you could sort of say, yes, it's definitely over. It's not though, is it? But at least we can pretend it's over for a couple of weeks. Well, we can say with some clarity that the year is gonna be finishing. That's one thing, right? We can cling on to that. Sure. James, yeah. are you feeling festive? Yeah, of course. Yeah, a couple of weeks till Christmas. I'm I'm definitely feeling festive. Like if you if you can't sort of get, I am I've been described as, you know, by humbug and and the Grinch on many times because of my you know naturally moody demeanour. But <laughs> if after this year you can't get involved and feel some merriment, merriment and cheer, and get involved with, in this sort of Christmas spirit, then you should just give up, shouldn't you? So yeah, definitely. Yeah, it feels like we really need it this year, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, right, listen, upcoming on the pod for you today, we will go deep on what 2021 might have in store for business and tech and, you know, humanity. We will review our case study on design ops at IKEA, and we'll hear from EY's Beatrice Sanz Saiz on how data analytics could help close the gender gap in industry. But first, here's some news. This week saw Google go down. Well, not all of it, but a lot of it. Many hugely important and influential companies, such as our own, saw around a half an hour of downtime with YouTube and Gmail, the main services affected. Everything seems to be back in order as we record, but that certainly caused a few unwanted headlines. Elsewhere, recently, we saw the foundation of the Modern Computing Alliance. Google are involved here too, along with the likes of Intel, VMware, and Zoom. Apparently, the Alliance is all about improving computing standards, security, and interoperability. Earlier in the month, we saw a big cybersecurity story emerge from the United States. FireEye, one of the country's biggest security vendors, was hacked. It says by a, quote, foreign government. CEO Kevin Mandia said FireEye had never before seen some of the sophisticated methods used to infiltrate its systems. Lots of other stuff happening too. We've had Cisco buying IMI Mobile for $730 million. HPE announcing that it is to leave Silicon Valley and relocate to Texas. And of course, Salesforce buying Slack for $27.7 billion. Incredible amount of money. Now, you can, of course, listener, read the reporting on these stories and many more via the bulletin on digitalbulletin.com. But next, we are going to mark our final episode of the year with a broad look ahead to what 2021 might hold for the tech industry. Now, you don't need me to tell you, listener, that 2020 has been extraordinary. Before the recording, I went back to listen to our episode in March, where we spoke very seriously about the number of COVID-19-related deaths passing 1,000. Now, the global figure sits at more than 1.6 million. 
End of year is often a time for reflection, and I'm sure we will all take a step back and think about the many, many people affected by this coronavirus. Now, industry has also been impacted, of course, and will continue to be by the consequences of COVID-19. Just what will 2021 be like? And what role will tech have in our lives post-pandemic? Rom, let's, let's sort of kick this off. It feels like, you know, as we look ahead to 2021, that we're kind of beginning to usher in, aren't we? Like a new and a very different kind of era in a lot of ways and a lot of uncertainty attached to that. Do you think from, from for businesses, obviously a lot of businesses have been very, very badly impacted by this, but the ones that are kind of still going and, you know, they're, they're having to fundamentally kind of think and operate and, and, and be different, aren't they? Like going forward, it's, it's a real kind of shift. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's, there's kind of two ways that we in our position look at this right there's there's us as an organization a, a small one relatively speaking um and what it's meant for us and then how we can kind of project from that experience out onto other people and then there's all of the reporting and all of the interviews and all everything else that we do where we're looking at much much larger organizations and how they've responded and um there's a lot of commonality in those things i think we've um i don't know i can't speak for you guys but i'm very much looking forward to getting back to some sort of office <laughs> at, at some point during 2021. That's going to feel like quite a moment um, because it's only when you're divorced from um, from the old way of doing things in actual office environments that you realise what you're losing by not doing that, at least on a semi, semi-regular basis. If you project that out onto much, much larger and much more seriously populated organisations, they're, they're going to be making a lot of serious decisions around those kinds of uh, things during 2021. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, months ago, right at the beginning of this whole pandemic, a lot of very big companies announced that um, working from home will become a much more acceptable thing going on and forever. Um, but how do companies ultimately find that balance? When Where do they locate themselves? How do they make sure that... Um, that their that their people are, are are functioning and productive as well as they can be in and out of an office. What is that office from now on? I don't think anyone knows. I don't think we know, even on our level. So how does that you know how does that translate into something during twenty twenty one? Who knows? But it's going to be really interesting to see how that works. Are we going to see the demolition of uh, inner cities? For example, yeah. not literally. I mean, <laughs> in terms of what they are and how they function, and what effect is that going to have on the uh, on the ecosystem of inner city environments with all of the the things that support vast populations of people rolling into town every day? Significantly less people are going to do that, probably. What does that mean for shops and bars and restaurants? And you know, it's going to be quite probably quite slow moving, but also seismic in terms of the structure of, of our built environment, if you like. Yeah, but the, the remote working thing is important, I think, because it's not just about, you know, literally where people work. It's about how companies then are able to operate in, in that kind of, with that kind of sort of system in place. And I think a lot of companies maybe have managed this year and have found sort of kind of ways. But if we imagine, imagine the new normal going ahead, not just in 2021, but beyond, um, I think, yeah, it, it, they're still going to have a lot of a lot of things to think about. I want to I want to kind of reference a couple of 
interviews I've done recently on on this kind of point. I mean, I, I interviewed the CEO of Teleperformance, which is a massive outsourcing company. I think CEO for UK and South Africa. And he said something which really kind of hit home with me at the start of the pandemic. He forgot about his business and all he was focusing on was, was his people, his employees. Um, and I also did an interview with somebody from Facebook Workplace, which is going to be being published in an upcoming issue of Digital Bulletin. And he said for, for next year, he thinks like a, a key KPI for many organizations will be kind of the the health and well-being of employees. We're, we're seeing, Roman, we're seeing this shift towards kind of people-centric business, and that's either customers or employees, and and in, in many cases, both, obviously, just a real focus on making sure the people are okay. Right, yeah. And and actually, you know, the, the companies that come out of this strongest, uh, in, whenever there's a crisis, whenever companies are, find their backs to the wall, whether it's a financial crisis or a financial crisis precipitated by a health crisis or whatever it is, the companies that tend to succeed are the ones that innovate the fastest, um, who who double down on their investments, um, but who are also extremely people centric in terms of how they organize themselves. Because um, while you can maintain the heart and mind of a person who's working in your organization in the short term, um, they will leave if somebody's doing a better job of sustaining that over time after said crisis is done. And so if you're going to be in good shape come uh, the growth period again, um, you you have to focus on that because ultimately any other KPI, KPI you've got cascades from that, right? And that's as, that's as true for us as a small business as it is for any large business. And it's a real test of leadership probably in terms of how you you're able to uh to achieve those things yeah it's amazing isn't it to think that how it the kind of, the kind of focus on people has naturally come sort of come to the fore it makes you think before in in the kind of structured office environments that were so embedded in companies how maybe that, that focus on people wasn't necessarily there james going to bring you in here let's let's look at the kind of tech side of it obviously cloud didn't really need a boost but 2020 has certainly accelerated um the cloudification of business and the the companies who are getting richer and richer by the second providing sort of cloud services in 2021 that surely is just going to keep going and going isn't it yeah i think so and i think the the pandemic is pretty much validated cloud use isn't it like the the argument of cloud has won um companies it's shown that they need to have sort of access to on-demand services they need to be able to scale um you know, instantaneously a lot of the time. Um, and we know that, you know, while vaccinations might be happening uh, around the world, that this is not going to be a quick fix. And actually, even after the vaccinations, the way enterprise works and spoke about the, the people element, the way people expect to be treated by their companies has changed dramatically. So so people have, you know, been empowered to to work from their homes or, or where, wherever it may be. And, I think we're obviously going to see a hybrid of an office model with people working in remote locations, whether it's satellite offices or from home. And to, you know, to facilitate that properly, cloud use is only going to go up. I, think, I read before the, the podcast today that um, Gartner has said that spending on public cloud will rise by 18% next year to $305 billion. So it's only going one way. Um, and, it, you know, I think we're going to speak about trends later, this trend of distributed cloud and hybrid cloud and multi-cloud. It's just going to get bigger and bigger. 
because organisations need to have it and it all comes down to really employees expect to, to be treated like adults now to be able to, to work from where they feel most comfortable and to do that you need the cloud infrastructure to, to support that new model so you know quids in as if they needed it for the likes of AWS and Microsoft <laughs> Oracle so yeah it's, it's, it's certainly just gonna get bigger and bigger in 2021 that's for sure. Yeah, and well, you know, I love this topic, James. So I could talk about it all day. But let's let's move away. I think that should um, be a spin-off <laughs> podcast on its own, really. You know, otherwise, who who knows how long we'll be speaking about it? The IT services podcast. Um, yeah, I know, James. In the last issue of Digital Bulletin coming up before Christmas, there's going to be kind of a, a look mm. ahead to some of the other kind of tech trends, future tech trends that we might expect to see in 2021. Can you give the listeners a bit of a kind of sneak preview about what we might expect? Yeah, certainly can. Obviously, you know, distributed cloud is one of them, which we've just been speaking about for for obvious reasons. Uh, I hate to use the term of COVID nineteen flavor, but that is what the the trends have. You know, they're all been sort of driven by by the, by this change. Um, and if if you think about it, really, it's ridiculous that it's taken a pandemic to be sort of the great enabler of this movement of digital transformation. It's it's incredible, really. Um, yeah, so so another trend that, that has certainly come up, um, and, the, and the piece that will be um, in the next issue is sort of based around some um, predictions that Gartner has made for 2021. So we tried to get some expert insight on on each of those topics, and one that really came through very strongly. And uh, you know, I could have written a whole predictions piece on this this subject is hyper automation, and that's really the idea that anything that can be automated will be automated for, from next year so it's it's about automation at scale really and it, it and that's really so it's automation at scale that complements sort of um rpa so that's using sort of machine learning um, and really sophisticated automation tools to to automate completely across the enterprise um and and really and really to help augment human capabilities i think gartner says that that companies that, that really move quickly on this will be able to sort of cut their operating expenditure by 30% if they're really able to to integrate hype automation. So that's one that really comes out. Another one, and again, really related to COVID is this idea of anywhere operations. And that's, you know, that's both for customers and for employees, the idea that the IT operating model that supports customers and employees can manage infrastructure wherever the customer or that employee may be um so it's basically delivering services there um, and sort of blending the virtual and physical employee and customer experiences again it's you know is it remote is it physical it's it's all driven by this huge change right um so that's a couple i won't give them all away there are nine different trends that we'll sort of dig into in 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 this issue so it's a lengthy piece so you know good luck to our designer putting it together but hopefully it'll, it'll be worth it to give you know the readers a bit of a, a flavor of what we might expect next year yeah it's not a surprise that all of them are kind of welded to covid19 and its effects right mm. um yeah ron where do you where do you feel kind of technology will have the biggest impact in helping us and and companies kind of return to some sort of normality next year is it is it kind of the cloud aspect is it is it the this kind of work that some amazing technologies have been doing with um with the vaccine developments and that kind of thing where, where do you think ultimately tech will have its biggest impact is it there's technologies that we all know about obviously with 5g is going to start to mature during 
2021. Um, there's all the cloud stuff that we've just talked about, which obviously has been established for a while. It's just going to become um, ubiquitous. Um, I think uh, there's health tech as well is going to become a big uh, game changer because I think one of the things that's emerged um, fairly rapidly during 2020 is um, virtual consultations and things like that. There's a much greater emphasis and understanding of the fact that people are actually going to have to start figuring out how to share medical data properly now. Um, maybe finally that will actually start to happen properly. There are obviously other healthcare innovations that have been happening, not least, of course, the science and technology behind developing vaccines rapidly. Um, these, um, I think what we're going to see is the fact that there are lasting, there's a lasting legacy from a lot of these things. Not least because what we've essentially seen in 2020 is um, a disaster response. And you can see that in terms of lots of different technologies, but also in terms of how people use technologies and what they're, um, uh, you know, what, which ones are proving to be practical and cost effective and which ones aren't. I mean, just look at app development around contact, contact tracing and stuff. Here in the UK, we've had an absolutely shambolic example of how not to do that. Um, the silver lining there being that's a really good lesson learned, hopefully. All of these things will, I don't think, go away. Coronavirus um, uh, or COVID-19 is not going to go away. It's going to become an endemic thing that's managed much like other diseases. But now I think there's got to be an acknowledgement that the next pandemic is not very far away. Um, but there are other disasters on the horizon as well. The climate crisis obviously is an even bigger one. Um, maybe we can take that quite seriously now. Um, it's, in, it's important for everybody, every company, everybody who's running in a, in, in a, uh, running a company, everybody who's working in one, everyone who's a member of society, to basically bake into reality now the fact that disaster response needs to be basically just a... a, a, a a condition of our existence from now on we can't just you know kind of sidle along and hope that everything's going to be okay because actually the next crisis isn't that far away we know it's not um whether it's viral or environmental and so over the next decade certainly i think we'll start to see a real shift in terms of the way people work how they value things like as you were saying ben um value uh people and their well-being uh and at a much greater degree than purely looking at the bottom line and, and, and people as a cost and all those things, especially as we become distributed, because the temptation is going to be to say, right, everyone on zero hours contracts, everyone's a, a gig worker, everyone is um, variously employed for some of the time. And, and, you know, all of these things are going to be kind of fundamentally difficult to manage. And it's very important that if we're going to get through that, we set a really high bar to say, where do we see the value in people and what is you know what is a person as an asset how do we reward and and make sure that they're able to be productive and useful and not cast adrift in some remote workplace while dealing with all of these crises and technology is going to underpin our ability to do all of that obviously 5g couldn't be any more better timed than it is if you see what i mean yeah well i think yes it certainly feels based on what you've said that 2021 is really just the the beginning isn't it um and there's going to be so much more to kind of happen and to learn and to uncover, but it does feel like we're on the, the cusp of, of sort of everything is changing and, 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 and on the cusp of real change. So 
on that, we're going to move on. But yeah, there's going to be loads more reporting on these topics, obviously, on digitalbulletin.com in 2021 and beyond. But for now, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back right after this. Find us as Digital Bulletin on LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram and at digi underscore bulletin on Twitter. For this month's case study review, we are going to look back on our recently published feature with IKEA, or more precisely, Inca Group or IKEA Retail. We had the privilege of making a COVID secure trip to Sweden to find out all about IKEA Retail's cutting edge approach to digital design. Just how is the iconic furniture seller delivering the IKEA experience for its online customers? Apparently, the key is design ops. Now we're going to hear from a couple of important people from this IKEA journey. But first, James, what is DesignOps? Um, <laughs> I've written many thousand words about this in the last couple of weeks. So, so DesignOps principally is is sort of a spin-off of the DevOps movement. So it's about the sort of optimization and orchestration of, of people, processes, and tools to really amplify. Uh, the value of design and design tools, right? So it addresses challenges like growing and evolving design teams and putting the right people in the right in the right place uh, in the right places, rather. So if you think about challenges a design team might have of, over workflow and tools and governance and, and infrastructure, all of that stuff, uh, the design ops or the design ops movement is is really created to address all of them. And and principally, the whole point of design ops is that. It takes all of the fragmentation away that you find in bigger organizations and just really allows designers to to sort of get on um, and design. So that, and, and also design ops, everyone who uses it sort of becomes an evangelist for it, right? So they, they help an organization sort of understand the value of design and design ops. So in a, in a, I was gonna say nutshell, but that wasn't really a nutshell. In a sort of long and sort of maybe slightly incoherent way, I've sort of explained what design ops are, but I'm sure you have some clips from people at Ikea who, do, who <laughs> probably put it better than I do. Um, no, I thought that was very good actually. That was very well, good. Thank, thank you very much, that's very no, kind. Well, you know, as as you may well have known, we do have some clips. And um, one of the key people in the design ops revolution at IKEA is um, Carolina Boromalm, who is head of global design operations for IKEA Retail. And in this clip, she reveals the different challenges, first of all, that led IKEA down the path to digital transformation in this area. As a design ops department evolves here, and before it even started, we had a lot of different issues. We were struggling with design maturity in terms of digital design. IKEA being a design company, that might seem strange, but it is not a digital design company. So this is a great shift for us to make and to understand what does this mean. Uh, we were product driven and um, we, we were trying to adapt to the, to, to the product, to the business without the thought of how do we actually cater for the users. Uh, we, are, we were also struggling quite a lot with, with the legacy of uh, not having so many designers employed, but being uh, a lot of consultants in our teams. Uh, this meant that as consultants joined, they came with new ways of working and new processes, uh, but they also uh, came with new tools. So there was no standardization of, of which tools we used and the quality of deliverables. Uh, we also have uh, basic stuff like how does a team evolve? 
if we, if we create development plans for our team members that are employees and also consultants, uh, how, how are, what are the skills levels? How do they upskill? Um, how do we onboard people, new people? So there's quite a lot of things that we're targeting and trying to mitigate by, by creating the design ops department. So some interesting thoughts there from Carolina. James, the department was only set up in April, I think, wasn't it, this year? So it's still it's still a relatively new thing for IKEA Retail. Can you tell us a, maybe a bit about kind of what has been achieved in the short time so far? Yeah, so it, it's, it's very new, actually. Um, but the, they've achieved a hell of a lot, actually, in, in that time. And what really struck me, we spoke to stakeholders from across the business who have in, you know, who have come into contact and have started working with the design op team. And what really struck me was how much people have sort of bought into it. You know, um, we it, we spoke to sort of representatives of the the, the UX team, um, and what they said that what was really great for them, they've been able to really quickly sort of access training and reskilling programs for, for their teams to make sure that, that you know they're really properly resourced and that the 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 guys they've got are really well skilled to work on sort of multiple work streams, which obviously a place like IKEA is really important. They have all, you know, real omni-channel presence. So they're developing tools for, you know, online apps. So, you know, there's it, a great deal of programs they have to work across. So that was one thing that really came across. I think people are better skilled now and the, the, the right skills being matched up with the, um, with the right jobs. We also spoke to um, a guy called Adam Kereshtes. Is that the correct pronunciation? I think that's the correct pronunciation. Um, but he he was sort of telling us how he he's sort of one of the heads of the the design engineering team, um, and he was telling us that any sort of request for you know better tooling or or, or resources, usually in most companies goes to an IT department who don't really have an understanding about what design teams do or, or or what they need that all of that sort of um all of those sort of requests they now go through the design op department who have you know a very clear understanding of what it is you know they're not going to second guess you or, or or sort of you know ask you why you can't do one thing one way they completely understand what it is that design team need design teams need from across the business so that 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 was what for me really came across that it's already having a real like, a demonstrable improvement on a lot of these on a lot of these teams and how people are working. Yeah, it's incredible to get that kind of insight into, isn't it? How how a huge company like this, this kind of strategies they put in place to to make really what for for an end user is a relatively simple thing to to kind of make that happen. Yeah. Um, Rom, yeah. let's try and kind of sum up that challenge because we know in retail at the moment generally there's a it's extremely challenging for those who maybe haven't kind of fully got on board with the kind of online digital experience of shopping. Um, and I think Ikea is unique in that regard, isn't it? Because a lot of it's kind of the, the experience for customers is going into the store and engaging with them, um, engaging with the brand like that. So obviously moving that online and keeping that kind of unique Ikea feeling, as it were, is is significant task, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there's no better example than Ikea, is there really, uh, of, of why of, of why this sort of thing matters. First of all, there's the structure of IKEA, which you mentioned, which is actually far more complicated than you might realize um, as a franchise system. But also um, everything that is kind of at the heart of what IKEA is as a brand is about experience and primarily a physical experience, whether you're in the shop, uh, you know, if you go to IKEA, you're kind of there for a day. It's, it's more like going to a theme park, right? And then, 
And then not only that, you buy the products, but you don't buy the products. You still have to go and build it yourself. And that that is this uniquely IKEA thing. You get home and you build it yourself, which means that you invest yourself literally into that. And it makes everything you buy from IKEA much more meaningful. How do you take all of that and then make it digital? Well, first of all, you're going to have to be really careful about how you position yourself, what your tone of voice is and all the rest of it. And then you've got to be really consistent with it. And then you've got to do that in, uh, you know, uh, a load of different languages. So it's, 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 a, it's the case study of all case studies if you're going to be looking at design ops as a, as a thing, right? Um, but it's, it's fascinating. And I think, you know, I personally, uh, I... Uh, in reading your words, James, and listening to people like Caroline speak about it, I learned a lot about how you might actually gear your head around thinking about design as something that's completely central to you know your whole organisation. Really, when you when you realise that actually it is, um, it impacts every single thing in your entire organisation. Yeah, so it's yeah. it's hugely interesting. Now, central to the design up strategy is IKEA's new design system. Um, this is a single source of truth for bringing together the many different aspects of digital design. And as we've spoken about, there are many, many different aspects and many different areas that kind of need to be funneled into this. In the article, James describes this as the design ops team's jewel in the crown. Um, and here is Adam Karestesh, acting head of product UX design for IKEA retail to tell us why. The design system is, uh, it, it's not only you know, a couple of design guidelines on how buttons should look or, you know, the margins of things. Um, many th times people think that that's the case. Uh, it's more about uh, a design system as like a representation of who we are as a company. So for example, visual identity is baked into that. Um, interaction design is baked into that. Design, um, motion design is baked into that. And more importantly, actually accessibility is uh, baked in. So. So if we're talking about designing for the many people, you know, design system is a, is a perfect representation of that because it has everything in it. And that also means that designers who are working on products can focus on you know, delivering values and looking at the, at the user journeys um, instead of trying to kind of reinvent the wheel every time. So it, it is a major benefit with working with the uh, design ops team around the design system. James, Ron mentioned this earlier, earlier actually, but a, a big part of the design system is kind of establishing the IKEA tone of voice, isn't it? And I think oh. when you're when you're a company that relies on your kind of image and your branding and your tone of voice as much as IKEA, getting that kind of stuff right is so important, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But you know, interestingly, we, we tone of voice isn't typically something that would be that important, or sometimes not even included within a design system, right? But obviously, for IKEA. You know, some a company that sort of redefines a certain experience, you know, with its store, it's trying to replicate that on your online channels. Obviously, tone of voice, just feeling, and the way you sort of interact with customers is is so important, right? Like, you know, you would know instantly if you were dropped into an IKEA store, and it sort of has to be the same on the on the digital channels. Um, so, yeah, it's it's massively important. Part of the design system is almost like a copy toolbox. So anyone who's working on any, you know, copy, whether it's uh, uh, someone internally there or, or, or companies they go out to, um, they have all these tools on on how they should speak to customers, how that how you know how the mess how the messaging has to has to be pitched, how to engage with them. Um, 
because it's such an essential part of what IKEA is, whether it's you know in store or 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 online. So that that tone of voice is yeah. They said I think it, we we spoke to um, one of the guys there who who works on that. She said, oh, you know, it's not typical uh, that tone of voice is part of a design system, but this isn't really a typical company, which I thought it was quite nice. And obviously we used it <laughs> within the article because it's a lovely soundbite, but I thought that really summed it up well, actually. Yeah, you, you know that every single word and every single image available to people via the IKEA Apple website has been poured over by somebody, oh, has been no, thought about right. by a team of people. And yeah, again, it's another example of, you know, maybe the end user not kind of necessarily really realizing that but it all kind of feeds well, I, yeah uh, i mean yeah, i certainly I, did i certainly didn't i've used you know ikea's website and this app you know they've got that cool thing where they use ar where you can sort of you know put a piece of their furniture if you point it to a place in your room you don't really consider do you you know what i mean when you're using when you're you know when you're using a digital touch point you don't really you don't really think about it but going and speaking to these guys the amount of work and thought and effort that goes into it it's just some believe already. Yeah. Uh, Rom, IKEA Retail were kind enough to introduce us to a couple of their um, key kind of technology partners, Idean and Miro, who have obviously played roles in, on this journey. Do you want to talk a bit about, you know, what both of those companies have, have supported them with? Yeah, well, Idean is uh, uh, part of the Capgemini family, but they have been uh, right at the right in the middle of this of this process, I think, with IKEA. Um they are a design uh, consultancy fundamentally. They provide resources and expertise and um, a sense of direction um, for the implementation of a lot of this stuff. They are a bunch of experts, and they're very close to Carolina and the and the rest of the of the guys over there at IKEA. So they're they're fundamental to it. And we we did um, some interesting interviews with with those guys as well, and to understand you know from their perspective. Um, you know what what their role and what their the value is that they bring in there so that's definitely worth checking out and we're going to be doing some more content with them about design ops actually um as as leaders and um uh experts in this field because it is really interesting um miro uh is a very different thing they, that essentially is a a platform that enables enables distributed teams to to do whiteboarding style collaborative tasks and i think uh, certainly from what carolina was saying they they found a lot of use in that particularly this year um and now having practiced using those tools for a year you would uh, imagine that, that that will only grow in importance in terms of how they do things uh, going forward much, you know much in tune with the conversation we were having a little while ago right these these tools themselves have become available have matured um and as have the people that are using them to make sure they get the most out of them. And, and Mira, I think, has, has become quite a fundamental tool in uh, IKEA's toolbox um, for, for managing what they do. Yeah. And Ron, what about the kind of experience of doing this case study for us as a company as well? Because we, we cover technology, but this one seemed particularly close to what what we are as well, kind of being, you know, we're a company that does creative things. And, <laughs> you know, design ops kind of it's that it kind of covers kind of technology and kind of creativity and, and and kind of you know covers both doesn't it so in terms of some of the work that we've done in our in our in our time this this is up there isn't it in in terms of the story yeah absolutely i mean i i couldn't go which is very annoying because obviously like the rest of the world i've been trapped and suddenly we're actually able to go somewhere um i'm not sure we could now actually 
said a little bit of time has passed and things are you know are changing again but um it was it was revelatory for sure for us um uh, as a group to to understand some of these things and not just that but to experience what it's like in the place while it's happening if you see what i mean it's all very nice to look at these things academically from a distance but to uh, to um i imagine i'm imagining this james but i'm imagining that um being in the presence and talking to a bunch of people who are genuinely evangelistic about um these uh these tools and these practices that they're deploying is uh in loaded with information that otherwise you wouldn't necessarily get if you're just looking at it from a distance am i right yeah it completely opened my eyes into um i knew obviously i we we go over there and we are professionals so we know what we're going to be speaking to people about so obviously i knew we were going to it was going to be sort of heavily um influenced by this um design op story um but it, you know it's only when you start speaking to people that you realize how fundamentally it's changed something like digital design for a company like ikea you know um it was it was fantastic. It was, it's the one I've sort of enjoyed the most. I think it would be would be fair to say. Um, and we were very lucky that we were able to we nicked in this tiny window that we were allowed to go over to Sweden and do it. Um, but to speak to the, to them all, and you know, they weren't just blowing smoke. These these guys were you know very passionate about what they were doing, and you could see the sort of large scale change that had, that had already. Um, sort of driven in a company like IKEA with the program less than a year old. So you know, to speak to professionals at the the absolute top of their game, you know, it was great fun. And getting you know, seeing a seeing a foreign city at the same time, you know, thrown into the bargain was okay as well. Despite you know, pints of beer costing over ten pounds, but we'll not speak about <laughs> yeah, overseas overseas travel such a luxury these days. Right? Um, <laughs> No, it really, it really is a, a, a great, great case study. And I thoroughly recommend listening for you to go over to digitalbulletin.com and, and read read the article that James put together and, and watch the video as well. Real kind of genuine insights and design ops. And we talk about trends for 2021. I think we'll be certainly talking more about design ops um, next year and beyond. Right. We are going to move on and we'll be back after this brief interlude. Power up your day with the Bulletin Brief, the latest news, insights and opinion delivered straight to your inbox. Beatrice Sanz Saiz is Global Consulting Data and Analytics Leader for EY. In her role, she looks after around 9,000 EY professionals, a committed team of people supporting the company's clients on their technology journeys. In my interview with Bayer, we speak about the perception and power of technology, how data can help close the gender gap, and an EY initiative that offers mentoring to female entrepreneurs. But first, I started by asking her what drives her passion for data and technology. What wakes me up every morning is the ability to have an impact, to, to drive change, to, to build a better world. That's actually why I like also working at EY. And I think like uh, if you look back years ago, when you wanted to have an impact, you, you used to become a, a doctor or, or a, a professor or a lawyer. I think now it's the, in the world of tech is where uh, you can drive kind of the greatest impact uh, in the world. I'm very passionate about the tech for good, but also I'm a very creative person. I like to think big. 
And I think we have a chance to even kind of reshape the enti entire industries, the uh, future value chain. It's just the, it's it's more about depends on what what we are able to imagine that what the technology is, is able to do, because I think we can nearly do almost everything. It's more about us. So really, you know, um, waking up every morning, working with my colleagues, which are experts in sectors, uh, industries, in, in domains. Uh, we work together to, to drive change and to have impact. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these technologies and kind of these thoughts are still quite new. A lot of people are still unaware of the potential of these technologies. When did it first start for you? Were you one of like were you one of the early kind of people who was very kind of supportive, almost an evangelist for to technologies like AI? Like when you first started out in your career, were you were you always very keen to sort of see the potential of technology? Well, yes, I think <laughs> now things are a bit easier. But when I when I started in the in the late nineties, uh, and I've always been close to doing. At that time, we, we used to call this data mining, yeah. Uh, and now it's more data scientists and AI, but uh, the foundation is very similar. Actually, these algorithms, some of these algorithms, the fundamentals of neural networks, they come from uh, the 70s uh, or even the 60s. So it's been here for, for a long time. But now it, at that time, it was taking to, a lot of time to process uh, some data. I remember putting uh, my computer and living, running it the entire night. Yeah, and so and now things are get done, in, you know, um, in seconds or, or minutes. So things have changed, but the fundamentals are the same. I think uh, I think uh, in terms of readiness, uh, a lot has changed. I think uh, companies have realized that this is this is here to stay. Uh, we are moving from the stage of doing a proof of concepts, etc., to really embed. Uh, data, AI, and automation in the core operations of a of a company. I think everybody needs to to get to this point about you know being more efficient. Learn by the second. Learn with every transaction. Learn with every interaction. And this is where yeah, I think the, the market is is more ready by by far compared to to years ago. Yeah, it feels like we're kind of right in the middle of this big change right now, doesn't it? Um, yeah. Obviously. People like yourself, Bea, and even even us, you know, we we cover technology. We know we know the power and the potential of these technologies. But is it fair to say still there is, is quite a lot to do to get that message out to the to the wider population, to to, to people in general? Because I think a lot of people maybe have still have negative kind of perceptions of technology, especially AI, artificial intelligence, and may think that it's going to take away jobs or whatever. Do you think there's still work to do to kind of get get that message out there? The the changes these technologies can bring ultimately uh, uh, probably in most cases going to be positive for everybody of course there's still a lot to do i mean in terms of communication uh uh to ensure two things first uh, uh adoption yeah there's still a lot to do to increase uh, adoption of these technologies i think the world um enterprise system we should all see these as the as the next excel yeah like uh, i remember the, the days where you know excel kind of was uh, uh started in the market now everybody use excel so i think uh this is still worth to do to simplify the use of ai to put it in the hands of real business users you don't need to become to be a mathematician yeah to uh to manage kind of ai tools um for decision making that's kind of a uh, something that the technology even just in the last 12 months 
has both evolved, but it's still there's uh, there's there's work to do in that in 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 that space and also in the in yeah efforts around communication. Uh, they 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 have to yeah they they have to be there. But that's one one aspect. So adoption and the other one is all this noise around let's say ethics. Yeah. Um, there's a big debate about you know whether AI is 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 replacing jobs or not. Uh, the ethics around AI. Uh, well, we can talk about artificial intelligence or augmented intelligence. I kind of like more about, and I think the world today is more at the stage of uh, augmented intelligence rather than artificial intelligence. Except for some industries, with are like for instance the auto industry, they are clearly going to autonomous systems, autonomous vehicles. But still, the majority of the industries are in the stage of uh, uh, augmented, let's say, augmented intelligence. The reality is that this technology, I mean, up to today, is creating more jobs. Yeah, uh, I remember when the industri industrial revolution, you know, there are always fears when there's new technologies coming in. Um, all the these revolutions have just expand the market, uh, the labor market. And I think this is not different. It's also expanding the labor market. Um, uh, in the technology space, I mean, this, we can we will see uh, demand for data scientists like increasing like crazy. I mean, in the next in the next few years, because data scientists or the world of data shouldn't be just seen as a tech domain, but also as a business domain. Yeah, and I think that this will expand incredible career opportunities for most of the data scientists to start maybe a world a career in the world of technology, but then progressing or moving towards, you know, any other any other field. It can be business, it can stay and remain in technology. So I think it's still, yeah, efforts to do uh, to increase adoption and remove some of the fears around ethics. There are obviously a lot of roots of this conversation that we could go down. I want to go down one that I know is very passionate, you're very passionate about, which is the gender gap that we see obviously in technology, but obviously across industry as well. Maybe can you Tell us how you think data and analytics can maybe help us close the gender gap. Well, uh, that's a good question. I tend to highlight, I think there are many ways. Uh, I tend to highlight five um, uh, five ways why data or how data can, can help at least close the, the gender gap. Uh, the first thing it sounds very easy, very trivial, but it's just uh, monitoring uh, what's measured, it gets done. Yeah, just putting kind of these numbers in the face. Yeah, and just uh, um, everybody realizing about what's the gender gap. Uh, I think that uh, that really helps. Uh, the second thing is um, on recruitment, on recruiting. Um, uh, the use of kind of all these kinds of uh, algorithms can really help um uh, first to do a better screening yeah sometimes you get thousands and and the use of uh natural language processing or optical character recognition yeah can really help us to to really kind of read or understand cvs in a very very kind of different way but also we tend to look at the the the, the quantitative kind of features of of a candidate while i think the qualitative uh, features are extremely important we can also use algorithms to help better understand 
the matching between a candidate and the values, uh, the values, the behavior, team player of, a, you know, of a particular individual. So definitely kind of all these algorithms, if they are rightly used, can help recruiters to, uh, to you know, to, to also kind of uh, uh, close that, that gender gap. Uh, the, the, maybe the third thing that I will highlight is predicting. Uh, um, the use of these algorithms can help anticipate which um, employees and which females are more likely to resign and also kind of the reasons why. Um, so I think this gives uh, talent, HR at the organization as a whole as an opportunity to open a dialogue uh, when there's still time for that, when it's not too late for that, where when you can take some action. So again, the use of data uh, for predicting, for understanding behavioral patterns uh, can, can help. Um, the fourth one I tend to say is about eliminating uh, bias. Yeah, um, which, you know, at the end of the day, for example, on around compensation. Um, this has been there for, for a while. I think numbers um, and kind of the right algorithms can help eliminate kind of those those bias, which, which you know, at the end is important. And then last but probably the first one I should have started with uh, is education. Um, uh, through uh, education, I think I think I mentioned before uh, having um, women and educated in science uh, opens uh, well. That's kind of the the very first kind of a step, really, to close the gender gap, starting with education. Um, I definitely will encourage a woman to to enter into you know into a, a profession of science yeah and data science because as i explained before it opens so many paths in the career you can choose about staying in science you can choose about moving to any other part of technology or you can choose about uh, actually you know uh, um, uh, moving towards uh, uh, business roles and actually i anticipate future lots of future ceos um, uh, and the C-suite to come from data science positions or data science roles. That's really interesting. Yeah, we, we hear a bit more these days about C-suite leaders coming from kind of technology areas, but data specifically, you're saying there, that's no, that's really interesting. And um, Bea, tell us more about EY's Women Fast Forward program. What is it and what does it aim to achieve? It's an amazing program. I'm so proud of what the firm is is doing. It's actually aiming at uh, you know implementing tangible actions to to close that gender gap um, through um, through mentoring. Uh, so, for example, I'm uh, I'm I'm particularly I'm, I'm the mentor of uh, of women in, in athletics, uh, uh, women that you know have been in Olympics. Yeah, in the Olympics. They are amazing, and somehow they just need to, you know, a bit of a, a mentorship to to help them on that on that path. So mentorship, um, it's important. Um, it's it's also about being present in 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 some of the the relevant forums, and it's it's also role about role models. 
um, uh, we sometimes ignore the power of, uh, of role models, and I think that's extremely, extremely important. Uh, and 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 we help also, you know, just being in the right in the right forums, creating the right uh, debates, uh, supporting education, um, supporting entrepreneur uh, and innovation. Uh, so we are quite particularly passionate about that, supporting women that are inter entrepreneurs. So uh, we are connecting and driving uh, specific programs on that so it's an overarching program that aims to to close the gender gap with very tangible actions uh, in the specific domains entrepreneurship education uh mentorship role models and uh i think it's it's, it's really you know it's having a a significant impact that sounds fantastic Bea, what, what gives you kind of the greatest hope that we can ultimately close this gender gap? Is it is it the technology? Obviously, you gave a lot of use cases there, really interesting use cases of how technology can can help help do this. Or is it is it the people? Is it the the leaders, like people coming together and realizing the the kind of gravity of this problem, and then trying to solve it, taking actions to solve it? What kind of gives you the greatest hope? Well, I think uh, I believe in humans. Yeah. <laughs> And I think uh, I think technology comes later, uh, but uh, I think uh, I see leaders kind of uh, driving uh, kind of a significant, you know, significant actions and steps uh, steps towards kind of closing that gender gap. I think that goes first. I think technology will help us on that. I just put some examples. Uh, I also believe strongly on education. Edu education is the future. Uh, we have to educate. Uh, um, women, uh, women in science, and I think the entire world of science will benefit from that because we're quite complementary, uh, complementary each other. So, uh, back to your question, I think it's on the leadership as, as, as humans really driving the first step, and I'm confident that this is happening already. And finally, Bear, bringing it back to you, obviously, we, we know that you've had this passion all of your career for these things. Is that passion burning even more now? Is, are you as passionate as you've ever been about these topics? And, and you're seeing change happening now in front of your eyes. It must really kind of feel great to be part of it. Yes, I can't. Uh, look, I, I feel privileged first to to be running a business of, you know, uh, 9,000 people uh, in this particular moment in time uh, with uh, uh, COVID-19. Uh, it was a fantastic response from everyone. Uh, the velocity with what we, we built platforms and solutions to help our clients navigate through, you know, uh, these challenging times. I think it was it was amazing, but it's also now more than ever. So now we have an opportunity to drive you know, again, a significant impact, which is what wakes me up, uh, what wakes me up every morning. Uh, but also, I think in the last 12 months, the technology, the technology that we have today is so much different than the one we had 18 months ago. And it enables us to do uh, far better things, data platforms. And, and so, yes, I'm more excited than, than ever also because, you know, with unfortunately with COVID-19, the well, the acceleration of digital uh, transformation is, you know, has been, you know, phenomenal. And and more than ever, now more than ever, data uh, is becoming at the, at the center, at the core of business transformation. 
That is all we have time for this month. Listener, thank you for sticking with us. But before we let you go, I just want to point you in the direction of a new podcast that we have launched, the Tech for Good podcast, featuring inspiring interviews with tech leaders who are looking to solve humanity's biggest challenges. We also have the latest issue of the Tech for Good magazine, which came out last week. And this year's final edition of Digital Bulletin will be out before Christmas all that's left for me to do is to say thank you to my panel, not just for today, but for the year. Romley Broad, thank you. No, no, thank you. James Henderson, thank you. Thank you very much. And we'll be back in 2021, listener. We'll catch you then. Bye-bye. That was the Digital Bulletin Podcast, brought to you by Bulletin Media. Listen and subscribe to a range of podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Plug in for news, features and case studies on the very latest in enterprise technology and digital transformation.